fascinated with royalty. For much of human history, we track the rise and fall of nations based on the leaders of those nations. That movies are made, books have been written. Even today, people are fascinated in following the lives of those who are in royalty. Even though their positions and really their responsibilities within a nation have changed. Take, for example, the royal, royal family there in England, right? People pick sides. They love or they hate the latest happenings of the prince that, that went away, right? Wrote a book about it, and people love the book, and people hate the book. And, and really, there's very few people that are neutral in this, in this case. And the reason for that, I believe, is because people are intrigued with families of power and prestige and position, and so the question is, how do people use their power and their position to benefit the needs and services of others? Over the next 10 weeks, we are going to take a look at the greatest of royalty, Jesus Christ himself, someone who took his position, took his power, and laid it down for the cause of others. And so we're going to be taking a look and discussing the most talked about figure in history by studying the least talked about gospel account in the Bible, which is known as Mark. Now, I call it the least talked about gospel, not just from personal preference, but from reality. The first commentary on the gospel of Mark didn't come into play until around the 5th century. And for many years, people viewed it as the lowest on the rung of gospel importance. Right, John has all the I am statements. It's got John 3.16, the most famous verse. You have Matthew and Luke have the Christmas story and have all these other elements. Well, actually, in the last hundred years or so of biblical scholarship, as more discovery like the Dead Sea Scrolls and other pieces of documents have come into light, what they've discovered is that most likely the Gospel of Mark, even though it is the shortest of the four Gospels, is most likely the first one that is written, and in fact is one of the primary sources for Matthew and Luke and what are called the Synoptic Gospels. And so the Gospel of Mark has actually in the last hundred years greatly been elevated because not only is it prominent, not only was it one of the first ones written, they believe it was written around 50 to 60 AD, which puts it only about 20 years after the life of Jesus. So imagine someone putting together a documentary or a storytelling of a huge world event, for example, like 9-11. When someone writes that with people who are from that era, who are from that situation, that are still alive, it is an eyewitness account of actual events and activities that have happened. And there's, there's great credibility there. And the reason that's important is because that if people question the validity of the storytelling and of the facts shared, they could go to the direct people that were involved in that story because they were still alive at that time. And so the proximity of the writing and the sharing to the actual happening of the events is so short that it's an incredible story that we have together. And it's all focused on the person of Jesus. Now, before we jump into our study of the Gospel of Mark, I want to give you a little bit of background or introduction into this book together. Because we're going to be walking through this book. We're not covering every single verse, but we're going to highlight some major movements and stories in this book. And it's going to take us all the way up to the Easter story. Now, I shared with you that it was written around 50, between 50 and 60 A.D., 
And that really some of the interesting things here is that the writer, Mark, was actually one of the assistants or people closely connected to Peter. So other people have called this, in a sense, the gospel of Peter. And it actually, in the way Mark writes it, it reflects the personality of Peter. So it's the shortest one. There's 16 chapters, like Matthew has 28, John has 21. And so Luke has like a bazillion. And so you have all that. And, and then Mark is like right to the point. So Matthew and Luke, for example, cover the Christmas story. And he's like, "Now nah, you don't need Christmas. Boom, Jesus, here we go. And jumps right in. And in fact, he writes it in present tense. And so even though they're past events, the way he writes it is like a story or a movie. And so it's action-based. You see in Matthew stuff like the Sermon on the Mount and long dialogue. You see in the Gospel of John, which was the last Gospel written, was there you see emphasis on the Holy Spirit and you see the I am statements and these things there. Luke was a doctor and so there's a lot of details involved and he was connected with Paul and so he covers his journey in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And while Mark being uh, connected to Peter, it's right to the point. In fact, he uses this Greek word, um, ethos, which means, or translated immediately, over 40 times in only 16 chapters. And so he's like, immediately, one thing to the next, one thing to the next. And where some of the Gospels are framed as a narrative or a sermon or a dialogue to persuade you into belief in Jesus, Mark just says, you make the decision, let me just show you who Jesus is. And this is great, great story and background behind it. Now, Mark himself was called, in a sense, a son of Peter, not an actual son, but like a godson of Peter. In 1 Peter 5.13, he was a cousin of Barnabas. That's from Colossians 4.10. He was, he's a son of a wealthy family in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 12, verses 12 to 14. He went on missionary journeys with Paul and Barnabas. That's in Acts 13. But then Paul gets mad and they got a little bit of friendship tension and breakup going on because Mark leaves the mission field for a bit, goes back to Jerusalem, and Paul gets angry, as Paul did. And, and he was like, no, I'm not taking him again. And he gets mad. And there's actually a rift that you can read about in Acts between Paul and Barnabas over this guy, Mark. But we know that relationship gets healed and restored. And we know that because at the very end of Paul's life, so one of his last letters in 2 Timothy chapter um, 4 verse 10 I believe is that he's writing and he says oh by the way Timothy will you send Mark to me because he will encourage me he is useful for ministry and so at the end of Paul's life he actually asked for Mark to return so there's a restoration of that relationship so we have this guy Mark he's an assistant to Peter he's writing down the words of Peter that's why Peter gets a little bit of favoritism in this gospel he gets mentioned a lot it's usually like Peter and the disciples and so he addresses that and he writes it in that tense, in that persuasion, in a storytelling, in a movie sense. We get this picture of the Gospel of Mark. And so some of the unique things about this is because Mark is all about showing versus telling. Even though it's the shortest book in the Bible, or short not in the Bible, but of the Gospels, it actually includes the most miracles. It actually tells of 20 different miracles of Jesus, 18 of which are in the first eight chapters. And so it's miracle, miracle, miracle. It says, let me show you who Jesus is. And the reason he writes this way, the reason he frames it this way, is because he's trying to answer this question. And this is really the greatest question you can ask in this life. And the question is this, who is Jesus? With eternity on the line, the most important question anyone in life can answer is who is 
Jesus. And the way Mark writes is to persuade you of the answer, but he doesn't even try to persuade you with words, but rather to show you the very character and heart of God. So if you're taking notes today, write this down as we give an introduction to Mark, and it's this, that Jesus has the power and the passion to save you. Jesus has both the power and the passion to save you. This is the thesis statement for the entire book. Now, this morning's message is entitled The Crown and the Cross, and the reason for that is because those two words, crown and cross, summarize the entire structure of the book. You see, chapters 1 through 8 really give us, as a structure, chapters 1 through 8 actually give us the picture of the crown. It lifts up the power of Jesus and him as a king. But then it's connected to directly in a transition found in chapter 8, verse 29, when Jesus looks directly at Peter, again, associated with Mark here, and says, who do you say that I am? It's that big question that we're trying to answer. And from there, it changes. And those last eight chapters, chapters 9 through 16, really cover about a week of Jesus' life. And the emphasis is the cross. And the reason these are important, because the crown, or the first eight chapters, points to Jesus' power. But then you have the cross, and the remaining eight chapters points to Jesus' passion. Okay? Another way to look at it is that the first eight chapters, or the crown, shows that Jesus' Jesus's authority. And then on the backside, what you see is that the cross shows Jesus' affection. So you have power, you have passion. You have authority, you have affection. You need both in every situation. Right? If you have power and no affection, that's cruel. It's greed. Right? How many leaders do we know today are out for themselves? They have money, they have position, they have title, and it's all for themselves. And they act in a way, what can you give me? Look at me. The world looks at me. And we lift these people up as celebrities, as authority. But if you don't have passion and compassion for the people that you're here to serve, you're missing it. But at the same time, okay, because that's cruel, at the same time, you need more than passion, right? Have you ever called customer service or something wasn't going right for a product that you ordered and the person on the other line after waiting for like 40 minutes on hold and being transferred to five different apartments and that person has passion but no power to do anything? It's the most frustrating thing in the world, isn't it? Right, like, hey, I'm calling because this product isn't working. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay, I'm not calling for validation here. I'm calling for you to do something about it, right? I wish I could. You can, that's why, that's your job. Like, that's why you're on the phone right now, right? And if you can't, I need to talk to somebody who can. Right? This is why when you call 911, can you imagine when you called 911 and emergency services if they had passion but no power? Right? 911, what's your emergency? This is happening. Oh no! What do you mean, oh no? I feel so bad for you right now. I can't, what are you gonna do? 
what, what do you mean, what am I going to do? Like, that's why I'm calling you. It's like, oh, I wish I could do something. Do you need to be emotionally supported? No. Send help, right? You need both power and passion. And the reason that's important is because the first eight chapters are going to elevate the ability and authority of who Jesus is. He's going to speak to storms, and storms obey him. He's going to speak to the blind, and the blind can see. He's going to heal the lame and heal the leper. And all of that to show people that he has the power to forgive sins. And as he's elevated with what he can do and who he is, what it does is it magnifies how low he goes. See, to be lifted high shows what can be done. But then to be brought low shows how far he'll go. Because if you just see someone who's suffering, like, oh, wow. But when you see someone who has everything and gives it all up for you. See, the first couple chapters could be described as the man of miracles. But the last eight chapters are really defined and described as the suffering servant. And in fact, the theme verse for the entire book comes from Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that says, for even the son of man, it's another title for a savior, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Power, passion, authority, affection. You need both. So let's jump into these first couple words here. What's interesting here in the very beginning is that verse 1 is the only place that Mark inserts commentary. It's the only place he inserts, because again, he's not trying to tell you anything. He's not trying to persuade you. He's just trying to show you and let you come to the verdict or decision for yourself. And so he says this in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is his answer to that question. Who is Jesus? The Son of God. What's interesting is that there's only one other person in this gospel that calls him the Son of God. But I'm going to save that one for Easter, okay? Because it comes at the end of the book. So make plans for Easter now. Okay, we're going to close the series there. So the book ends the way it begins. And so he gives you the answer right up front. I like that. I like the teachers that tell you the answer that's on the test. The greatest question, we're going to address this for 16 chapters here in church. We're going to address this over the next 10 weeks. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. And then he, he jumps right into it. And he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Side note too, it comes from Isaiah 40, for those who like to know. And then also he makes reference to within the statement from the book of Malachi. So he's actually quoting two different prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah written about 700 years before the coming of Jesus. And he says this here, it's, and he's quoting it. He says, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John appeared. Now, this is John the Baptist. And so the reason this is important, because he's saying there will be a forerunner, there will be someone who announces the coming of the Lord. Now, in the Christmas story, we hear this, that his birth was miraculous as well and prophesied. 
And we know that John the Baptist was actually a cousin of Jesus. And so he comes onto the scene, and he is not exactly what you would consider bachelor television material, right? Like, they always try to get the characters that are, have a great job or a great look or great personality or something that's like very charismatic and fun. This dude is crazy, right? Like, he is eating locusts. He is, it, he stinks, right? He's got some wilderness stink. I mean, they already don't bathe a lot, but of that realm of stinkiness, he's probably worse. And the question is, why would he do that? Well, because if someone came to you and was power and the position and the prestige of the royalty, right, and a little trumpet, like, you might be like, okay, he's just doing that for something, right? Like, he's doing that for money, right? This, they're trying to pull something over us. No, 700 years before Jesus comes, he says, out of the wilderness is going to come this guy, and he's going to announce the way of the Lord. And so that's this guy. So by, by downplaying the messenger, it actually elevates the message because he says, I don't want you to miss this. Those that know me know that I love going to Suns games. I love basketball and going. And, and what's fun is when they announce the teams, there's a PA announcer, right? Starting at guard, right? And, they say, and everyone goes crazy. Devin Buckers! <sighs> right? Like, why? Because it's a home team, right? So when the Suns score, they're like, one, two, three, and everyone's cheering, going crazy. And then when the other team scores, it's two points, <laughs> right? So John the Baptist comes onto the scene saying, this is the guy. He is the PA announcer here saying, here is the savior of the world, right? Starting at Savior, <laughs> coming from Nazareth of Galilee. Yeah, like he's making this announcement. He's making it so abundantly clear, right? Now his entrance was humble, right? The entrance was humble. Bethlehem stable, we covered that at Christmas, right? But when it came time for ministry, at this point, Jesus is about 30 years old. It was prophesied beforehand. He comes onto the scene and says, this is it. This is why I'm here. John the Baptist is about to say, it's not about me, it's about him. Right? A little side note, this could be a whole other sermon another time. Like, as Christians, we've got to start playing some home games. Do you know what I mean by that? When you play a home game, when you score, the crowd cheers, right? That's as a church body. We encourage each other. When something happens, we, what do we do? We get mad at the ref, right? We go through. We kind of downplay what's going on. Too many of us now are playing away games that when Satan scores on us, when Satan has a victory on us, we think that crowd is cheering against us, and we do something for God. It's like two points. When as a church body, when every time somebody takes a step makes a decision, decides to make the right choice, have the right attitude, we should celebrate that thing, shouldn't we? Why do we act like we're on an away game? I get that we're not of the world, but I've read the Bible, and we win. You have the power of God at your disposal, living inside of you in a risen Savior, so that when someone makes a choice, makes a decision, we should celebrate that and go for it and surround one another and encourage and not beat each other down, but actually do that so that when it seems like, it feels like Satan scored two points, hey, it's okay, we've got this, 
right? We go through, well, in this case, back to our message here today, that Jesus comes onto the scene, and so there's a big declaration. That's why Mark doesn't start at the Christmas story, right? His whole goal is because at the Christmas story, you don't quite know yet that Jesus is Son of God. I mean, he's called Emmanuel, and that's nice, but the baby's not doing a whole lot, right? Maybe crying a little bit. But Jesus, about 30 years old, he's about to get going. And when I say get going, it's 18 miracles in eight chapters. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, it's a fast, action-packed movie that's about to take off, and we got the opening credit scene, and here's John the Baptist saying, here he is. And so he goes here, and it says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism for, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So even then, it's about forgiveness, right? And that only God can save. And he's saying, in all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, we're going out to him and we're being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Part of me thinks, too, that like Peter gets such a bad rap at things, you know? Like he always like, oh, Peter, he fell, right? He denied Jesus. And so I feel like through Mark, he's like, I'm not the only crazy one, right? Look, look at John. Like, he's eating locusts, okay? And he goes, and so you see that it's wilderness, man. It's, it's wild. It's like those survivor shows. Okay, here comes this guy. And he's out there, and he says, and he preached, and after saying, he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. Now, the whole countryside was following his teaching, but notice the humility in John the Baptist here. It's the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 9 it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, there's the first one of over 40 times it uses that word immediately, Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit, so the Holy Spirit was even involved in the life of Jesus, ascending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. And I don't know about you, but I picture like a Morgan Freeman or Liam Neeson type voice, right? Like I just don't picture this tinny, soft-spoken whisper, like this powering picture here in a movie. And he says here, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And thus begins the earthly ministry of Jesus. Now, why did Jesus get baptized? I think really two, two reasons that I believe that we see in Scripture. Number one is that it shows the divine plan from the beginning. Right? Here is the leader of the culture at the time, John the Baptist. who He steps up and says, it's not about me, it's about him. I can't even, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He even tells Jesus that, and Jesus says, no, you're going to do this. And then you see the Spirit coming down, and you see a voice from heaven, this is my son. Again, it's showing that whole first one. The whole book is meant to show you the truth and reality of verse 1. It says, this is my son. So the reason Jesus was baptized, number one, is because it shows the, the divinity of who God was. But then number two, I think he does so to give us the model to follow. Right? How do I know that? Well, because we fast forward to the end of his life, 
in another gospel, in uh, earthly ministry, we see Jesus. He died, was buried, rose again. He's speaking to his disciples, and he says these words in what's known as the Great Commission. Chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. He says, Go therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so there is a command for us to do it. He's telling people, go and do what I did. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, it says, those who claim to believe in Jesus must walk as Jesus walked. Or other translations say that he, they must live as Jesus lived. And so Jesus was baptized to show his deity, right? The voice of God came down. And then secondly, to model for us what we're supposed to do. Because if you think about it, does Jesus really need to be baptized for salvation? Right? Because there, in that verse there, it said, baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is he going to really say, baptize in my name for myself? Right? Well, what is baptism? Baptism is a picture of what Jesus did for you and I. That he died on a cross, was buried, which is where you're going under the water, and then coming up, and then it says in Romans 6, 4, we talked about our theme verse this year, raised to walk in newness of life. That if Jesus conquered death, he has the power to forgive your sins and to give you life eternity. And so therefore it is a picture or symbol of that. I have my wedding ring on. If I take my ring off, okay, I'm still legally married, right? But if I take my ring off and I walk around life without it, how do you think that makes my wife feel, <laughs> right? Yes, I wear it for me, but I also wear it to show the world, and I, and I wear it for her. So the ring doesn't make me legally married, but it is a way to show my commitment to her. It is an outward expression of an inward belief, and we see this modeled by Jesus, then commanded by Jesus, and then obeyed by the early church. First time the church starts, Acts chapter 2, we read this in verse 38. It says, and Peter... Same guy that we talk about in Mark here. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, there are some people who teach the idea that you must be baptized to be saved. Now, we don't teach that here at Mission Grove, and I'll tell you why. Number one is that there are many instances throughout Scripture, in the New Testament specifically, that refers to the idea of belief. For example, right, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For you have been saved by grace through faith. Or it talks about in Romans 10, to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. And so repeatedly, there are these pictures of believe, obey, follow. Another reason we don't 
say that baptism is a requirement for salvation is because when Jesus was dying on the cross, the thief next to him acknowledges that Jesus is God, and Jesus turns to him and says, I will see you in paradise. Now, was that thief baptized? No. But I'm going to go with the guy that conquered death and say that his word counts. Right? Like, like if you go to a place like a VIP section and say, hey, I'm on the list, you know, and they create the list, the VIP list of who's allowed in. Like that's a thief on the cross. Right? He didn't have his theology right. He didn't have his life right. He didn't have all those things right. But what he got right was the acknowledgement that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was Savior. So that when he went up to the gates of heaven, he can just simply go, uh, the guy in the middle said I could come. That's enough. And then also what's interesting is that in verse 38, there it said, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. But in verse 41, just a couple verses later, it says these words, that for all who received the word were baptized. In other words, for all who believed it, who made a commitment of faith, were baptized. So they receive, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God and salvation is through him, and they express, express that belief through the act of obedience and baptism. Right? So Jesus modeled it. Jesus commanded it. The early church obeyed it. Now some people say, well, I need to go through these long classes. I need to go through that. Now on some levels, it is good to learn about what baptism is. And early church often had a long lead time between someone's commitment and baptism because if you got baptized, you, you could be killed, actually. So they're like, hey, you need to know this. We're being persecuted. Right? But there are other examples that there's not a list of requirements for baptism other than just genuine belief in Jesus. You see, in Acts chapter 8, there's a guy named Philip. He comes along this uh, Ethiopian eunuch. He's an official. And we read this in verse 35. It says, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. Doesn't that sound like Mark 1? <laughs> he tells them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, what is, um, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Did the eunuch understand all of faith? No. Did he have this dramatic life change already? No. What he did was he publicly acknowledged of his belief and reliance on Jesus as God and for salvation. And that was enough to take that step. And so as we sit here today and as we are getting ready to close our service, I want you to consider and ask yourself two questions. Number one, who is Jesus to you? If you have doubts and questions and things, I want to invite you to come back. Process this with me. Let's process and read this together. Because he spends the entire book to show us so that we can come to our own conclusion here. But you have to answer that question. And you have to answer that question personally. You see, it's important to make that decision or choice for yourself. Because the next decision or next question you have to ask yourself is, have I been baptized? And the reason we practice what's called believer's baptism is because the word is a Greek word, baptism, that means immerse. And I want to be very respectful and honoring of different traditions where they practice infant baptism, right? And, and, I, and I, honor, I want to honor that and I want to respect that. But I also, as your pastor, 
I want to bring a little bit of clarity to that scenario because there are no cases of infant baptism in Scripture. There's just not. What there are repeated examples of is Jesus himself getting baptized, telling us to be baptized, to baptize others, and then the early church baptizing people. And it became a natural expression of your belief or faith in him. And so I don't want to discredit anyone who's had that experience tradition growing up. All I, all I would say is this, that if you were baptized as an infant, you did not make that choice, right? What I invite you to do is to make that choice now. See, we celebrated child dedication, and that's very important, right? To raise your child in the way of God and lifting them up because every child is a blessing. And so I don't want to, I want to lift that up, and I hope you see that we honor that here. So it's very valuable. But the question is, who is Jesus to you? And if you believe him as Lord and Savior, I invite you to to consider making that decision for Jesus and going public with your faith. And and there's a little pushback, and let me address this too, that people, if they, they were baptized as infants, like, well, if I get baptized now, what will people think? Can I just encourage you with this? One, I've seen baptisms from people who are nine and people who are 90. But two, Jesus was baptized. Are you more spiritual than Jesus? Anybody can be baptized here if you claim on him. Jesus himself was. If anybody didn't need to be baptized, it would be Jesus. But he did so as an example. And here's the other thing I want to encourage you with as we wrap up is that that people are not going to be like, oh, wow, I thought they should. They're not baptized yet? What if you flipped the script and instead of being fearful of what people might think, what if it was an inspiration to others, an encouragement to others? Instead of saying, oh, man, what will people think of me? You flip it and think, oh, I wonder who I could inspire and who could be encouraged because I promise you that's what's going to happen. We can celebrate with you. We can celebrate your commitment to Christ. And you don't have to be perfect. And you don't have to do this. But I invite you to do that. I'm going to pray right now. If you haven't received Jesus, I want you to pray with me. If you want to get baptized next week, I invite you to do that. And if you haven't baptized, let's celebrate that decision that and commitment that you've already made. Will you pray with me? Dear God, just thank you for who you are and what you've done. Jesus, you are the Son of God and you are Savior. You have both the power and the passion to save. And then you gave us the model to follow and getting baptized. God, for those in the room who haven't received you, I pray that they commit their lives to you. Simple belief in who you are and what you've done. God, we ask for forgiveness of our sins because we can't make it on our own and we need you. So we commit our belief and our lives to you. Thank you for saving us. For those that are considering getting baptized, God, I pray that you would just encourage them to take that step of faith, to know that we would celebrate with them. And God, right now, we're about to, as we take communion, it is in remembrance of what you've done. 
that these are the two ordinances of the church, baptism and communion. May we remember who you are, what you've done, and celebrate all that you've given us because you have both the power and the passion to save. We love you, Jesus. In your son's name we pray.